Hey, if you got a Bible, I'd invite you to go grab your Bible, go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is going to be where we're at today. Hebrews chapter 4. Hopefully you found your way there. Our main passage for today is going to be Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13. This is what the Word of God says. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that through the preaching of it today, your people would hear the gospel. I pray, Jesus, that your voice would be on display. There is nothing that my uh, words of flesh, my words as a human man could do to change uh, the, the, the trajectory of a soul. But your words are capable of doing that. So, Jesus, I pray that you with the divine power of your Holy Spirit would move and work through our time together that through the preaching of your word, people will be able to see you as a loving savior that you truly are and that they would give their life, their heart, their future and all of their hope would now from this moment forward be banked on you. Jesus, for the person here today who is restless, I pray you would give them rest in you. In your name, amen. So, I read that passage, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page before we get ready to dive into and unpack that. In this book that we have that is the book of Hebrews, there's this pastor writing to a church trying to help them not let go of or not legalize their faith, to make this faith all about the rules that we follow, and if I check all these boxes, then I'm good in God's eyes. But also, he's telling them all these things about who Jesus is so they don't become lazy in their faith and drift away from it. Uh, over and over again, as we've been going through Hebrews, we've been talking about these two words, truer and greater. And the book of Hebrews really is just, just uh, to sum it up and to make it very simple, is a book where the author, God, the Holy Spirit, through the book of Hebrews, shows us Jesus' way to a truer and greater life. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's going back and he's picking out pieces and aspects of these people's faith, these Jewish people's faith, Hebrew people's faith, and showing them that Jesus is a truer and greater version of that thing. So he says Jesus is truer and greater than all the prophets. Jesus is truer and greater and far superior to all of the law. Jesus is truer and greater than all the angels. Jesus is truer and greater. And we just got through this, what Pastor Tim took us through, did a great job taking us through last week when I wasn't here, that Jesus is truer and greater than Moses. And what he got through doing is saying, okay, now I want you to understand and experience that there is also in Jesus a truer and greater rest than the rest that was made available to God's people in the past. Now, I want to get us all on the same page of what in the world that is, try to do that pretty quick, and then dive into this passage here, because this is where he really kind of goes, okay, now that you get it, Here's the so what, how to actually live this out, all right? And, and I think if we can get this today, then we can get some rest for our weary souls as well. So two 
images I want you to get in your mind to kind of have as the backdrop of being able to understand this. One is the garden and the other is the desert. Two things that cannot be more diametrically opposed. You have the garden. This is where God creates the world. This is where God has Adam and Eve. They're in this garden of Eden. And there the Bible tells us in this garden of Eden, they are experiencing true and perfect rest. The thing that is devoid in this garden is any sort of anxious feelings, any sort of of worry, any sort of fear in this moment. Adam and Eve have just a absolutely perfect relationship with both each other as creation and their father God as creator. They trust him to provide and meet their needs. And in this moment, if you were to define what they are experiencing in one word, I would put that word as they are experiencing rest. And I'm not just talking about kicking your feet up, taking a church nap kind of rest. They're experiencing souls that are not weary and burdened by the things of this life. Now, we know how that story eventually goes. They eat of the fruit, uh, they pass it around. And the moment that they eat, you see both of them kind of covering up everything because they realize that we're naked. Uh, that we are out here and it's, there's a breeze and I see that and you see this and they start to panic. Anxiety and fear and shame enters into the picture. And then what you see is because there's fear and shame, because now they have been discovered to be uncovered because that's what sin does. They go and they start sewing biodegradable underwear for each other. And they, they put all this stuff together and they've got this on. This is their first work that is out of anxiety to cover these things up. And eventually this story continues to go along those same lines. Anxiousness and trying to cover up the sin that they've committed is part of the backdrop of the story of God's people all the way up into the next picture I want you to see, the picture of the desert. See this people that started out as Adam and Eve went through Noah, went through Abraham and then comes through Moses and this this giant group of people becomes enslaved in this country called Egypt. And they're enslaved to the Egyptians. Pharaoh is ruling over them. God speaks to a prophet, Moses, and says, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And they send plagues and plagues happen. And and God does, does all this miraculous stuff. And then eventually God works on behalf of this people who he is again, continuing to do everything he can to get them back to what they experienced in the garden, this soul rest because they were experiencing the exact opposite of that while they were working for Pharaoh. They were slaves. Their life was defined. See if you can relate to this. Their life was defined by the number of bricks they could make. You make good bricks. You make a lot of bricks. You're a good slave. You don't make as much. You're not as good. You're defined by what you do. That was their truth. That was their story where they were at in Egypt. And God says that is an anxiety driven, fearful, shameful way for my people to live. I want them to enter my rest. But if I want them to enter my rest, I've got to get them out of the place of anxiety, fear, and being suppressed. And so God parts the Red Sea. They walk through it on dry land. And then they're in the desert, the exact opposite of a garden. And there in the desert, God says, I'm going to take my people into my promised rest. I'm going to bring you into this promised land. This land, God says, that is going to be flowing with milk and honey. God's got his chosen people and he wants them to go into this land. And they're there. God's helping them and and teaching them. And God's providing for them as they're out there in the desert. And they get pretty close as they're out there in the desert. 
And they get so close that they can kind of look over the hill and see where this land is. And so God sends out spies, 12 spies to go and look at this land and see if this is a place that they should go. And, and, and lo and behold, they go out there and all 12 totally agree that this is a great place and they should totally go to this place. But 10 of the 12 go, yeah, it's really nice and all, but that car is out of our budget. That, that, that house, that land, that is something we cannot afford. There is no way that we, as us, as our little kind of ragtag group of folks out here in the desert, we're not even weapons and all sorts of great stuff. There's no way that we can go and beat up on those guys. Yes, the land looks great, milk and honey abound, but those people over there, they're giants. We wouldn't make it. They would kill us all. But there's two guys. You remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. They come back and they go, yes, there are giants. Yes, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But remember, God said he was for us. He was with us. And our God said that he would cause us and allow us to enter into that rest. Now, who do you think they believe? The two or the 10? They believe the 10. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's issuing this warning. He's going, guys, do you remember how... 10 people's lack of faith caused an entire nation to miss out on my rest in the promised land? That is going to happen again, but he issues a greater warning because track with me, and this is, this is where Hebrews matters to you right now in McDonough. Was the garden awesome? Was it an amazing restful place? I mean, there's rivers with gold all up in it. There's trees that you can eat from. I mean, animals that are just out there and you, you know, it's just an awesome place, garden, rest. Was the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, a great place that God wanted him to the rest? For sure. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, and the truth that I need you to understand today, is in Christ, there is a rest that is greater than the garden and is greater than the promised land. That there is actually a land that you can enter into in a spiritual place even right now and have promised at the end of your life that Jesus says is far greater than anything in Cana and anything in Eden. And he says, this rest is made available if you're in Christ. Now that is where we should kind of perk our eyes up and go, okay, I need some rest because we're getting ready to come up on vacation season. Who's got vacation scheduled? All right, all right, none of you. Like you guys should go on vacation. You probably, you probably should. School's getting ready to get out. You gotta figure some stuff out. We all want vacations. But see if you can finish this statement because this is our culture. We go on vacation and we come back and then we say words like this. I need a vacation from my vacation, <laughs> right? Here's why, because you took kids with you. Um, <laughs> we call those things trips in the Shoemaker household. Vacations are when they stay at the in-laws. <laughs> but here's, here's why I need you to understand. We live in the most fear-driven society ever. We live in what I would call Monsters, Inc. You remember the movie Monsters, Inc.? You ever watch that with your kids? Go back. And, and look at it with gospel glasses on. The city runs on what? Fear. We gotta scare these people or the city's gonna shut down. That's our lives. Sometimes it can seem like everything in us runs on fear. And what we've come to realize is that we work, 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 and we do all these things. And there's no amount of, of melatonin gun, gummies. There's no amount of, of, of things, vacation time that we can take. There's no amount of those things that can give us an answer and a cure and a remedy for the true soul rest that we all realize, man, we're missing out on. And so 
you come in here today and we start talking about rest and we go, man, I don't know what that really is. I don't know what that really feels like, but I can tell my, I can, I can agree with you today that my soul is tired. There's some moms here today. I know your soul is tired. And what this pastor and hopefully this pastor and me is gonna to try to do is to show the solution and show the path into that rest. Let's look at our passage, Hebrews 4, 11. He says, let us, therefore, and when you see a therefore, that's when you kind of go, okay, new point is being made, some application spots are getting ready to happen. He says, therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hold up, stop, wait a minute. He said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest and all you here who are like, you raise your hand, like I'm, yes, I'm weary, I'm burdened, I'm heavy laden. When you read a verse like this, this doesn't bring you like, oh yes, that's great. I read this, same way you read this going, you're telling me I got another thing to do. He says, strive to enter a rest. It's like jumbo shrimp. This is like an oxymoron, like work really hard to rest. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. How do I do this? Well, great question. And I'm gonna do my best to try to explain to you what I believe the, the author and the pastor and the Holy Spirit is after here of when it says strive to enter the rest. Obviously bound up within this, is there some things I need to stop doing? There's some things I need to start doing. So what in the world does it look like to strive to rest? I would say it means this. It means to strive against all of your efforts to prove your own righteousness. I'm striving against everything in me that wants to say, because I do A, B, or C, I'm a good person. I wanna strive against everything in me that goes, look how good I've done, look what I've accomplished. And because of this, I am righteous. I'm good in God's eyes and I'm good in the eyes of the people. Look what good I've done. I gotta strive against everything that wants to give the credit to little old me. Or strive against everything within me that believes wholeheartedly that it all depends on what I do or what I don't do. It's all about me. Whether it's self-centered for positive reasons or whether it's self-centered for negative reasons, it's still self-centered, so it's still jacked up. The next, when it says strive to rest, I think one of the things it's meaning here is I strive against all of my efforts to justify myself. What I mean by this is I'm striving against everything in me that wants to do the good thing and think I deserve better because I did it. I'm striving against everything in me that goes, I'm getting what I deserve or I'm not getting what I deserve. That I'm, that I'm justified for what comes my way. Instead, it's going, I deserve the absolute worst because I have sinned against an absolutely perfect God. And so anything good that I receive in this life is grace filled gifts from a holy, righteous, perfect God. And to maybe put it a different way that maybe lands it a little bit closer to home. If you're anything like me, basically like if you have red blood in your body right now, at some point in your life, you said something like these words. I'm not enough. You've either said it, you felt it, or it's been something subconsciously. 
You've had some parent in your life that you could never, you could just never please them. No matter what you did, what grades you made, what job you got, you were just never enough for them. And, and with that relationship, you just always felt like, man, I am not enough for you. And for some of you, there's, there's something in your life that's missing right now, whether it's a husband, a wife, whether it's a child, whether it's a job, a promotion, a title, something is missing in your life right now. And because that thing or that person is not there, you don't feel like you're enough because you look around at other people in their lives and you go, well, they're enough. They're what I want to be. And you find yourself kind of when you look in the mirror going, well, I'm not enough because I don't have that or I'm not that. I'm not enough. And the problem with that phrase, I'm not enough, is it gets you to this place. You felt this where you go, I'm not enough. So what do you do? You try to become more. Well, I'm not enough of an employee to get the raise. So I'm going to work, 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 work. I'm going to um, brown nose if I got a brown nose. I'm going to lie. I'm going to stretch the truth a little bit if I got to stretch the truth. I'm going to do whatever I got to do because I can get this raise. Because if I get this raise, I can get that job. And I get that job. I can get that money. If I get that house, I can get those things. And then I'm going to finally be enough. But almost everybody in this room, if you haven't yet, you're going to bump into it. All your striving and all of your efforts and all your attempts to be enough is going to lead you to the exact same place. It is not enough. And you're going to say a phrase that goes a little bit like this. No matter how much I did, it was never enough. It was never enough. Now, if you've been there and you, you've said some things like that, it was never enough for you or it was never enough for them or it was never enough. Here's the good news. You're this close to saving grace of Jesus Christ. Don't don't take that feeling and that weight and that eternal thought that says, I'm not enough as a bad thing. I'm telling you, friend, that is one of the best things you could ever say if you actually believe it. The problem is so many people will hit those moments in life, whether it's a fail in parenting, a fail in a marriage, fail at work, fail in their faith, and they'll have one of those moments and they'll go, I'm just not enough. But they will not believe that and they continue to, okay, well, I'm not enough. Well, maybe I was just enough. I was just not enough this time. Maybe I just need to find the right cheat code or I just need to work a little bit harder. I need to fill in whatever blank and I just go in and then we go and we do the thing again. And then maybe you have a good week. Maybe you have a few good days. And then lo and behold, you have another one of those moments where life punches you straight in the nose and you go, still not enough. But track with me. If you can just have one, and let me just speak to some young people real, real quick for a second. If you can have one of those moments early on in your life where you, where you bottom out and you go, I am, I am not enough. I do not have what it takes. And if from that moment forward, you can actually believe that and get off the this hamster wheel of stupidity that maybe sometimes we don't realize we're on of going, well, I'm not enough. And then continue to go try to be enough. Instead, go, I'm not enough. Jesus, trusting that you are. Jesus, I cannot do this in and of myself. I do not have what it takes. Will you work in and through me to either show me that I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to prove that I am enough for them because I'm enough to you. If, I, if, friend, if you are enough for Jesus to go to the cross and die for you, you don't have to be enough for somebody in your family. You don't have to be enough for some guy at school. You don't have to be enough from some boss at work. You don't have to be enough for them because you are enough for him. And this is a rest and a freedom for our soul that he comes and invites us into. But again, that's, it's only available in him to go, 
Rest from yourself, rest from your working, rest from your striving, because Christ is enough. Now, depending on what type of personality type you got, I either got some really good news for you on this, or I got some really bad news for you on this. This whole rest in Christ thing is not something that you can do by yourself. It is not something that you can just wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, I just don't have what it takes. So Jesus, you do this through me today and you go out and you live that life. No, you still got your internal dialogue the same way I've got my internal dialogue and that thing's gonna undermine you within like five minutes flat and you're gonna be back going, you know, trembling in fear and anxious and doing whatever the modern day equivalent is of sewing fig leaves onto your body. But Jesus comes in and he actually gives us a solution. Why I love the solution that's why I said it may be good news or bad news for some of you. He gives us a solution that is outside of himself. Look what it says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Pastor Tim talked about this last week. As how, how do I enter this rest? How do I make sure that I don't have an unbelieving, hard, cold heart to God, but I stay with a heart of flesh, I stay with eyes locked on Jesus, I stay realizing that I do not have what it takes. How in the world do we do that? Well, that's the answer. We do that. You don't do that by yourself. This is why God created this crazy institution called the local church, the family of God. And it's why he says right here, he says, take care, brothers. He doesn't take care, big fella. Take care, guy. Take care, sister. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. He's talking to the crowd here, an unbelieving heart, which is what his way of saying. Hey, big fella, you got your own unbelieving heart. You need to take care. Here's how you take care of an unbelieving heart. And that unbelieving heart will lead you to fall away from the living God. And here's how you take care of an unbelieving heart. Extort, ex, not extort, that's bad. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, confession time. I wish when he gives this warning and he says, listen guys, Pay attention to this salvation you have. Pay attention to who Jesus is. If you don't, you're not gonna enter into this rest. So here's what you need to do to make sure you don't get a cold heart, that you don't stop believing in who Jesus is. Here's what you need to do. Make sure you read your Bible five times a week. Here's how you not get a hard heart. Make sure you tithe perfect to that one-tenth. Make sure you tithe that thing. Here's how you make sure you don't fall away, that you serve in kids' ministry and you attend church at least one Sunday a month. He said none of those things because every single one of those things is contingent on your individual work and effort. But what he does here is he ties your faith and you entering into rest to the congregation. And like I said, for you, some of you, that's the worst news you could get because it means you've got to get out of your comfort zone and build some relationships. For some of you, that is what you're most excited about. And we who are on the introvert side, we need your help. Okay, because he comes right here and he says, the way I don't get a cold, hard heart is by having someone in my life who exhorts, encourages me, how often? Every day. Now, some of you are like, what in the world does that word mean? Like exhort, all I've ever heard of is extort, like to take advantage of somebody. What does exhort mean? 
Well, the simple way that most people go is they just show, well, that's just encouraging people. Most of the time we see that and we're like, oh yeah, we kind of take a worldly definition, which just means uh, exhort means just encourage them, like give them good positive vibes or you know, whatever the culture says, send, send some positivity my way, or, you know, whatever. That's me exhorting them. But there is a Christian gospel definition of what this means. And it's not just a sending good vibes or it's not just being encouraging or saying, buddy, you got this. It is so incredibly much deeper. It is actually saying, friend, I love you, but you don't got this. And let's, let's have this honest heart-to-heart conversation. You know you don't got this. That's step one. And I know you don't got this. But let, let's just for a second. Sisters in Christ, this is the conversation you have with another mom. Okay, I know it's hard right now. I know it's painful. But let's just for a second stop and think about the mothers we will be if we let Jesus fill us with his patience, if we let Jesus fill us with his wisdom, if we let Jesus fill us with his encouragement, if we let Jesus fill us up with his peace, imagine the mom I could be to my kids. That's extorting because it's taking my eyes off of my abilities and what I have going on for me and it's locking my eyes on Jesus. And when I see Jesus and the unlimited potential that's bound up in him, I go, okay, I'm confident now. Because he's in me and I'm in him. and He will work through me for the sake of these people. And remember, the story that's supposed to be the backdrop of all of this encouragement that he's giving them is a story of Joshua and Caleb there in the wilderness. We can see Joshua and Caleb as the two spies who look over there and go, we can take these guys. Sometimes we think that their confidence came from them just knowing like we're really good. But what you don't see when they come back to camp is Joshua and Caleb being like, listen, man, I just hit a bench press max of 450 pounds. I know these guys are big, but I'm getting jacked. Like Joshua's been doing Taekwondo and I watched him choke a few guys out. Like, I think we can take these guys. They're not boasting in their own abilities. When they come back from spying on their land of rest, they come back and they say, yes, they're giants. And there's no stinking way we can kill them. But God is our father. We trust in him. We know him. We're his kids and he is going to provide for us. He we are his people. If this, and they look in the rear view, which is what you have to do a lot of times. If our God can get us out of Egypt, why, what makes me and you think that he can't get us into Canaan, into a land with milk and honey? But everybody around said, shut up, Joshua. Shut up, Caleb. Those guys are big and scary. And they left. But I don't think it's any coincidence that it wasn't just a Joshua that it wasn't just a Caleb. There was two guys to show us that if I want a faith that does not get hard and turn away in disobedience, then friend, when it comes to your faith and my faith, it takes two. You have got to have somebody in your life who's encouraging you and you have got to be perpetually in somebody else's life encouraging them. Now, does that happen on Sundays when you sit in your rows out here? I'm hoping, I'm, I'm exhorting you as I, as I preach the gospel to you. But listen, if you're not in a community group, if you don't have, if you're not coming to the different men's ministry and women's ministry thing, and you don't have people in your life who are actually saying these things to you, there's a reason he says every day, as long as it's called today. Like there's a reason he's saying, 
You cannot make it through this life alone by yourself. You can't even make it through one day at a time without having somebody speak this into you. So some of you, your to-do today is to go find out and ask somebody, hey, will you, will you encourage me? Not in like, hey, you know, pat me on the butt and tell me I can do a great job kind of way, but will you start reminding me of what's available to me in Christ? And some of you, especially I'm talking to, let me just for a second talk to some of you who are a little bit more mature in your faith. You've been following Jesus for a little bit. This is your call. Your next level of faith is becoming somebody who exhorts and encourages those around you. All you parents who are at the grandparent phase of life, you saw this stage full of 40 something people. You're like, well, who, where should I start, Pastor Trent? Pick, pick one, okay, I can give you their names. They need all the help they can get. But this is what the local church is about. This, I believe, is what makes the local church feel like family because it's not a group of people who are all just kind of looking over each other's shoulders and going, oh, it looks like they got their stuff together. Oh, it looks like they're really pulling their stuff up by their bootstrap. Oh, no, it's a group of people going, man, we absolutely don't have what it takes, but Jesus does. Let's lean into him for a little while. That's what his hope is. That's what his prayer is. He goes on from there and I, I wanna show you that this, this, is, this is the hard part of this, that, that if you don't get I think you're in danger. There's no doubt that in life things are going to get hard, right? It's going to happen. Whether that hardness is you'll be like in a garden season of life where things are great, but there's some really hard temptation in the midst of a great season, or you're in a desert season where there's nothing, it seems like nothing good is around and you're tempted to like cash it all in and just go like the people of Israel who are just like, what, what were they saying? They're out there in the desert and they say to Moses, Moses, have you brought us out here to die? We'd be better off in Egypt. It was their way. Look, this is, we don't really see this at surface level, but this is what they were actually saying. We'd rather have a Pharaoh than a father. We'd rather have somebody who we know if we just do what we're supposed to, they give us what they're supposed to. So there's a grave danger when things get hard. When things get hard, what Satan will say to you is, quit, just give up, what's the point? But when things get hard, what Jesus is saying to you is not, well, buddy, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, go work harder. What Jesus is actually saying is, no, 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 no. Rest in my finished work, rest in what's been done for you. Now, some of you are out there and, and, and you're having thoughts around this like I did when I first saw it. When things get hard, at first, it doesn't seem like Satan is saying, quit. What it seems like he's saying, because it sounds like what we're saying to ourselves when things get hard, is work harder, try more, put in overtime, work a little bit harder, go to that class, go do this thing, pray an extra day, do all these things, and then it'll work out. But what happens if over and over again, time and time and time and time and time and time again, you go and when life gets hard, you try to work yourself out of it. And you come to that place where you go, it's never enough. You experience that enough that life, and some of you have been here, life will beat you down to the place where you realize you are never enough. And if no, nothing has intervened, Satan comes in and he goes, well, if nothing you did worked, and if you are never enough, what's the point? 
quit on the marriage. If you're never good enough for him, why stick around? If you're never good enough for her, what's the point? If I'm never good enough as a parent, run away. If I'm never good enough for a, for a, a boss or an employer, what, what's the point of doing this? If I'm never good enough for these religious parents that I have, what's the point in having a relationship with them in the first place? And then you track that spiral all the way down, and this is where Satan, again, um, we shouldn't be surprised that the suicide rate goes up year and year and year and year after year. Because if you have a people who are as restless as we are, who cannot find any rest, but yet continue to work harder, more hours, and strive and live off of caffeine more and more and more and more, but realize that this is a vain pursuit and a stupid existence, then he whispers in, well, don't, just, don't just quit on the marriage. Don't just quit on the job. Don't just quit on the kids. Quit on life. And what, what I need you to understand in here is that Jesus' voice is not saying work harder. Your way out is not work harder and your way out is not quitting. Your way out is resting in the finished work of Christ. And I would say to some of you in this room, let's just, let's, let's be people who take life as serious as it really is. If you have somebody in your life, whether it's your family, your workplace, um, your kids, your spouse, somebody close to you that you love and you hear them say those words, no matter what I do, it just feels like it's never enough. That's your, that's your red alarm to begin to pray, but not just pray for them, but to exhort and encourage them and to have that heart-to-heart conversation where you go, listen, I agree with you and I hate that you feel that way. But at the same time, I love that you feel that way because if you never felt that way, you'll never turn to Jesus. And so don't take this as a sign that Jesus is mad at you. Take this as a sign that Jesus is calling you, that that he is like a loving, caring doctor, like a loving, caring father who's going, I realize that you are not enough and I want to show you that I am. I want you to show you that the work is finished, that I have paid the price that you're trying to pay that you could never pay. So why don't you just let me pay it? You don't have enough in the funds. You don't have enough bank, bank for this. Let me pay for this. I paid for this with my blood, will you rest in my finished work? And that's, that's what exhorting and encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ look like. But if, you're, if we're all just these people who are out here to just build our lives and to build our empires, and we're not resting in the finished work of Christ, we are not going to look to our left and to right and see who we can exhort and see who we care for because we're too busy racing them to the imaginary finish line that does not exist in this world that only exists in resting in Christ. So from here, this author makes the connection, okay? This is the rest that's available in Christ. And then he, then he tells us how to experience this daily so that we can give it daily. And he brings it to the word of God. He says these words. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he says, verse 12, He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he's saying, don't, guys, don't fail to enter this rest. 
And then, then, then everybody kind of goes, well, well, how do we not? And then he goes, the word of God. Let me tell you about the word of God. He says, the word of God is living and active, which is his way of, of circling back to what Jesus already said in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. That means Jesus has been there from all along. This is circling back to even what this author of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1. He said, it is through Jesus that everything that is made was made. That Jesus was with God from the very beginning. He didn't just show up in Bethlehem one day. That Jesus is the thing that called, the one, the person that caused everything to come into existence. And it didn't come into existence by him waving a magic wand or him doing some kind of hand motions or him just thinking it with telepathic you know, thought waves. He spoke these things into existence. He said, let there be light. He said, let there be fish. He said, let there be mountains. He said these things. And once he spoke, something happened. That's why the Bible is not a dead book. It is living and it is active because John 1, 14, he continues the thought. He says, this word became flesh and this word, it dwelt among us. It put skin and bone on and it came and lived the life that you could never live to die the death that you could never die so that you could have true life, eternal life in him. So he says, this word is living and active. We get maybe that it's living, like Jesus is living. He's still here right now. Jesus is alive. Jesus died and rose again, but he's God. Our God does not die. Our God is here with us and he gives us this word. But what, let me just ask you a heart to heart question. Lean in here with me. What does it mean that this, the contents of what's bound between these things of leather is actually living and active? Friend, I want you to know this, this, this thing is miraculous. I want you to be a person who has a, a higher view than you have right now of what this actually is. Because Jesus comes on the scene and through the author of Hebrews, he says, this is living and active, which means that in the same way, track with me, the same way that God's word was living and active at the beginning of time when he spoke his word and said, let there be light and something actually happened. The same thing should be happening in your and my life when God's word is read by us and spoken into us. And so many times I think we come and we read God's word like we're reading Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn or Twilight or whatever book we might read. I don't know why I picked those three. Um, <laughs> and we just get these things on the page and we go, oh, that's some cool trivia or that's some good knowledge or, oh, here's that applies to what's ever going on in my life. But what I'm trying to get you to do is to let God's word be living and actually activate something in your life. So, so what I mean by that, let me, just, let me just read some things to you. If this is true, that God's word is living and active, track with me for a second. I'm, just, I'm gonna give you a lot of scripture right here. If God's word is living and active, that means that words like Philippians 1.6, like when I read Philippians 1.6, I should not just read that passage and go, hmm, sounds good. I read Philippians 1.6 where it says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Then I read that and I go, okay, here's what I'm confident in. That word is now activated in me. I'm resting in this fact that this God is doing something in me, even when I can't see it, even when I can't sense it, even when it feels like I'm taking three steps forward and two steps back every single day. This God who is faithful to me and his faithfulness to me is not contingent on my faithfulness to him. This God has started a good work in me and according to his word, let me activate this in my life. God, you will bring this work in me to completion in the day of Christ. 
and, and, and like stomping your foot with some of the confidence that should come to us from the word of God to go, this is my story. And, and this is what's wild. This is why, this is why you have to not just read the word, but pray the word. When you pray the word, the truths that are in here become your heart cry to a holy God. Where you begin to, to read things like Psalm 28, where, you, where it says, the Lord is my strength. I'm not working with my own strength. I'm not working in my own ways. And the Lord is my shield. God, I'm not gonna try to protect my stuff. I'm not gonna try to vindicate myself. You are my shield. You protect me from these people. You protect me from myself. You protect me from my pride. Jesus, you are my shield. And as I speak that, I'm activating his shielding of my life. I'm believing that now, when I get up from this moment of prayer, I have a God who is strong in me. I'm believing that I have a God who is shielding me. But so many times, we come to the Bible, we read some stuff, we go, I don't really understand what that was. And we get up and we go. And, and my prayer is that we would be a people who let, let God's word be living and then pray with everything in us that his word would activate this transformation that it brings about in our life. That the same power of God that could speak and darkness that covered the entire scope of the earth could turn the lights on could turn the lights on in your life as well. Let me see where we can go from here. Hebrews 4.12. Let's stay there. He says, living and active. And he says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And he's saying that this, this word is, is a weapon. Now, what's crazy here is, again, he's trying to help this nation of Israel see this story against the backdrop of what has already happened. Now, what maybe you don't realize, Tim didn't give you this fun nugget last week, but when the spies come back and they're all there and you got two that are like, hey, we can do this. And you got 10 that are like, we can't do this. And pretty much the whole nation gets in consensus and goes, yeah, we're not going. We're not going to go try to get those giants. God speaks and he says, y'all done messed up. <laughs> Essentially, that's, that's uh, the... In TV, New Trent version, y'all done messed up. And he tells them, because of that, bad things are coming. And you know what they try to do? They change their mind. They go, oh, oh, well, on second thought, God, now that you said something, because you haven't been talking all along and telling us that we're your people, on second thought, God, we'll go fight them. And God goes, if you go and do that, you're going to die. Because now it's not a part of my plan. You were disobedient. And they go and they try. Look what happens. It's crazy. They go and they try, and then look what happens. Numbers 14, 42 through 43. This is God speaking to them. He says, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. I would have totally been among you if you would have went the first time I told you. I'm not with you no more. He's not saying he doesn't, they're not his people anymore. But he says, I'm not co-signing on this kill the Canaanites plan because you're not doing my plan. My plan was go check it out once, come back, and then go. But all y'all said... No, lest you be struck down before your enemies for their Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you will fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord and the Lord will not be with you, which is no coincidence 
when he's talking to them now, he says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's kind of his way of saying, if you don't live by the sword that is the word of God, you will die by the sword that is this world because it is going to attack you. You will fall by the word of your own intuition and your own thinking of how things could go. You either live by the sword that is this word and be victorious, or you will die trying to defend yourself, defend your honor and do things your way in a world that is totally in opposition to you. So he says, let this word be living and active, transform your life. Question I would ask you here when it comes to this is do you read the Bible or do you let the Bible read you? The beautiful thing about him saying the word is living and active and it penetrates down to these things is it divides out what's really going on in our life. But do you come to God's word with those types of questions? God, reveal to me my inmost thoughts. Reveal to me what's broken on the inside. Use your word to shine a light into how broken I am and how perfect you are. And then let me work together with your Holy Spirit to bridge the gap that you have bridged for me. He goes from there and he ends it with this passage, the last verse, Hebrews 4.13, closes it out. He says, all right, if this is what God's word does, it reveals the inmost parts of us. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. Going right back to the garden. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's his way of saying, at the end of the day, guys, everybody is going to be held accountable for what you did or you didn't do with Jesus. Everybody is going to be held accountable for your sins. Somebody is going to be held accountable. Either you will allow Jesus to be held accountable for your sins and put your faith and your trust in him and, and enter into eternity, knowing that you have the full presence of the Father to look forward to, or you will say, I'm going to try to work out with my good deeds and I'm going to try to let myself be held accountable. Friend, I'm telling you, you cannot be held accountable for you. If you try to be held accountable for you, you will spend eternity separated from the Father in the pits of hell. There will be weeping. There will be gnashing of teeth. There will be eternal anxiety, fear, and shame like nothing you could have ever experienced here on earth. But if you choose to let Jesus be held accountable for your sins and your mistakes, friend, you will enter into a rest that this world could never have given you. And the choice is yours. My, my prayer is that you would choose to answer the words of Jesus, who in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, said this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you will find rest, not just for your body, but you will find rest for your very soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And friend, that's a rest I hope you can experience forever. It's also experience I hope you can have now as you rest in him as you take communion i pray that you sit in that that you revel in that rest that is coming your way
and then stand and sing and stick around as we get ready to, to baptize three people into that rest as well today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for a day like today where we as your people can celebrate that you have made us a family and that we as your people can experience and celebrate the fact that we get to enter into rest because you went through the pain of the cross, the separation of the empty tomb, but you rose, Jesus, and you rose to give us rest. I pray we would rest in you today. In your name, amen.